Hello, friends. It is episode 89 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. We're happy to have you joining us from wherever you are around the world, and thank you so much for listening. My name is Eric Nance, and it would not be an Our Weekly Highlights podcast without my awesome co-host, the man who knows all the ins and outs of the Tidyverse all day, every day, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing? Doing great, Eric. Uh, yeah, I, that's a very kind intro, and I guess we're going to be talking about some of the ins and outs of the Tidyverse first off today. We sure are, man. We sure are. And uh, before we get there, we want to thank our curator this week, Rio Nakakawara, one of the OGs of the curator group at Our Weekly. Always great to have him on. And as always, he had tremendous help from our fellow Our Weekly team members and contributors like all of you from around the world. So yes, let's let's take a visit to the Tidyverse, shall we? Well, to frame this, in certain aspects of my life right now, I can't avoid having to repeat myself, especially for being a parent. That's a hint to you, Mike, for future days, <laughs> if you haven't experienced it already. Or, or current days. Yep. Or current days. Yep, that's true. But there is one area where actually avoiding repetition is encouraged, and that's in programming, especially if you heard of the DRY principle, or don't repeat yourself, that we've seen in many uh, blog posts and tutorials in recent past. So on top of the added keystrokes to write maybe the same type of code or function, where you only change maybe one or two things like a variable name or sorts, the chances of botching another call as you do this frankly get to be much higher. And yes, yours truly experienced this even yesterday when putting a little inside baseball here, so enjoy, but putting a shiny app around um, my colleague Will Landau's targets package I duplicated the name of a target name multiple times, and I had an incorrect S after one of them. And boy, when you debug things like that, when you go the abstractions of like targets and shiny and everything like that, that's where when you can you can pay a hefty price for repeating yourself a bit too much. Now, getting away from such an esoteric case, but in data processing in general, it can be pretty easy to fall into this situation as tasks such as repeated variable names or munging calls just kind of pile up on top of each other. So in our first highlight today, research software engineer and at one time a previous podcast host, Nick Tierney, uncovers a few gems in the tidyverse to save you some time and perhaps even your sanity in a common data processing situation. So Nick's post starts with motivating the problem at hand where a colleague of his wanted to quickly derive rankings of numeric columns for including into the data set. Now, if you only have a handful of these, sure, you could simply do a few mutates of new columns without much of a hassle. But I hate to be the bearer of potential bad news, but that stuff doesn't scale, my friend. Instead of saying maybe only having three numeric columns, imagine you have a hundred of them. Now, this is where it could get really ugly and really tedious really fast. Well, dplyr, one of the poster child packages of the tidyverse, as of a, probably a few releases ago, comes with the across function, which is a handy way to take a function you might use in an individual mutate call and apply it to multiple columns right away. Now, by default, 
Across will apply the function to all the columns in your data frame and simply replace the current versions of those with the values of the new of the new derivation. Now, I would imagine you want to preserve the previous columns that you had that you wanted to transform with that, which you can easily do with using a name parameter and make those names dynamic with a glue structure, which is really great to have a more you know, re, a reusable naming convention. Now, with a data frame of only one overall type of variable, that might be enough for you right there. But in the real world, you're gonna likely have different columns that represent maybe additional metadata or other characteristics that you don't necessarily wanna transform in this across function. Well, much like the other dplyr functions, you can supply helpers to narrow down the desired columns using select helpers, such as starts with, if your columns follow a pretty standard naming convention, but there are other helpers that exist as well. So definitely check out the docs of dplyr to learn more about them. And then as the post wraps up comes a real revelation to me personally. Now, what if you wanted to ensure that the original column was placed side by side with the transform version like this rank example, instead of just batching all those transform columns to put at the end of the data frame. Well, Nick concludes the post by introducing us to the relocate function, which is a really convenient way to change the column order of your data frame without having to manually define the names yourself and then kind of remapping those to your data frame with like a names and then shuffling the column orders in a pretty manual fashion. So I was really intrigued to read about this because I've done this so many times where I stepped out of my chain to quickly do this and then go back into the chain for the further processing. So I feel like this relocate function is going to be one I use quite a bit in the future. But in general, the across function is just another example of how the tidyverse is trying its best to minimize your repeating functionality for the better, my friend, for the better. So what did you like about this post, Mike? That was a great rundown. And what I really love about so many of these newer tidyverse functions is the amount of steps that you can accomplish in a single function call. I was using uh, Pivot Wider from TidyR yesterday, and I had to do some pretty complex like column renaming that I was able to do using glue syntax right inside one of the pivot wider arguments, which was incredible because, you know, doing that a couple of years ago before we had tidyr, it would have been a bunch of uh, steps probably chained together to do all that renaming all the pivoting, uh, you know, putting the values where they need to be, but we can all do that just within that function right now. And this kind of thing can take some getting used to. Uh, I really struggled with this at first because the code you're writing is a little less explicit than you might be used to. Um, I would say the same thing goes with packages like per. You know, I don't think anyone would say that they took off running with per on day one that it came out and like fully understood it right away. Um, I still, if I'm using per, I have to have the docs up at, at all times just because it's so powerful. And the, the, the immense power and utility of these functions and packages stems a lot, I think, from how clever they are and the abstractions that they make for us. Um, I really liken these examples to the use of, of you know, the across function in the dplyr package that's the subject 
of this blog post, you know, we're able to operate on multiple columns without explicitly referencing those columns within the operation. And in most of my use cases, about 90% of the time, making your code more concise is a good thing. Um, it's reducing the number of steps that you're taking to get from point A to point Z, the number of lines of code that a reviewer has to take a look at, um, or somebody has to read to understand what's going on. And Nick shows us how we can mutate three columns by first explicitly defining those three columns um, in a single calculation against each of them, but then shows us how much more concise we can do the same thing using a cross. It's worth checking out the blog itself to see this for yourself in action. Um, I'm an addict about making my code as, as concise and easy to understand and efficient as possible. Those are all trade-offs though, and we deal with those trade-offs from, from day to day but it's great to have Across to help us do this even easier. Not to mention, like you said, Across is so flexible because it can take not only you know, base functions like sum or mean or max, you can supply a user-defined function, anything you want to Across and have that function operate um, against the columns that you've specified, which is really cool. I find real-world examples of Across uh, being really useful during feature engineering. Because usually when I'm building a model, I'll have you know a set number of variables that I'm sort of starting with in my raw data frame. But across can be a huge help to do a bunch of feature engineering in way less lines of code than you would have to do otherwise. Um, really great blog post. Um, it's awesome to see this highlighted. Yeah, and it goes to show you that across many aspects of the tidyverse, you'll find nuggets like this, and they're not the only ones that implement this. But once you take a little investment to know about the wrappers, I think that's my biggest issue is sometimes these just kind of fall in the cracks, so to speak. And I fall on my old habits of using the, the I'd say, my previous R life kind of methods of developing code. So knowing that these nuggets exist is, is certainly a big step in the right direction. And I know things like the Tidy Models ecosystem also follow similar principles, like you said, with the feature engineering of similar column types and the like. So they're trying to maintain that cohesive structure. And I think that's extremely, extremely powerful. And frankly, another benefit of utilizing approaches like this is in my estimation, it does make debugging much easier because the more you can avoid like writing out temp objects somewhere and then having one little typo cause complete chaos everywhere because you did that repeating functionality. I think, yeah, being able to know about what per can do for you and what these other helpers in, in the tidyverse um, ecosystem really can help your future dev dev journey. And again, painful points earlier this week um, when I didn't adhere to that, but luckily now I've even my colleague will even found an easier way for me to avoid some of that with targets specifically. So it stems across the ecosystem, lots of little nuggets like this to save you time and hopefully hours of debugging as well, for sure. Absolutely. No, that's a great point from a debugging standpoint. I've been caught by that and saved by across with that. <laughs> yeah. And, and being able to do the user-defined functions, those are really awesome, but it also shows you that a little investment into being comfortable creating your own functions, you never know just how useful that will be. So having that mindset 
from the beginning, even if you're still kind of new to the whole data processing pipelines in, in kind of the current state of R, I think can also save you a lot of effort and, and time too. And now for our next highlight, it's just like when an old friend visits again. We have in our second highlight another fantastic ggplot2 showcase post here. And maybe you're like me and you've been inspired by the plots that have been shared, say, via the Tidy Tuesday hashtag on Twitter. And you kind of wonder, how could someone get started building such a polished yet creative plot? This is certainly not the first time we talk about ggplot2, of course. But I always enjoy these posts where it gives you a little bit on the inside, so to speak, of how someone arrives at such a polished visualization. Ecologist Michael Kulshaw Maurer, hopefully I said that right, takes us through his design process of his own custom theme with a healthy balance of flexibility and time-saving tricks. And what Michael acknowledges up front is that Sometimes there are just situations where you might not have everything the most polished for every use case, but just getting something that can enhance your productivity and give you a nice canvas to start with, even if it's more of a rough sketch, as he acknowledges, I don't think it's anything rough at all about this post. It's very clear, very concise. These are the things that you can build upon later on. So Michael first takes us through the final plot itself and the code around it, which if you're familiar with ggplot, won't look like anything too radically different other than a lot of neat um, customizations to the theme and the like. But what really got me um, interested in this post, amongst other things, is some spotlights on some packages that I was not aware of, um, such as using the function element markdown as an alternative to the typical element text where you can put markdown text in things like your title or your subtitle and the like. And that comes from the wonderful ggtext package. I have not used that in the day-to-day, but that's something I definitely want to pursue after reading this post. And then a neat little trick that Michael highlights for getting hex codes from a particular color scale where I've used an external website to take a an image of my plot, post it on there, and then use its web UI to grab the hex codes. But apparently there's a cool little trick you can do with building up your plot, taking a specific slot of it, and then using a color space package, its swatch plot function, to display those colors right then and there after you extract those hex codes. So you can do a little exploration on which colors you want to use for your theme. And then the last nugget, I'll be there are many more, but apparently there's a new package called GGH4X. I'm not sure if that's the way the author intended to pronounce it, but it works for me. Um, This has some really handy functions to customize things that you might want a little more control over that don't necessarily fit in the ggplot2 type of paradigm in terms of like extensions, such as customizing the labels of your facets, customizing how the scales appear on your facets, Um, Lots of other little nuggets there, too, that I definitely want to take note of for my next visualization. But in the end, you see how all this blends together to Michael's custom theme, which even though it's using the Diamonds data set, I admit this was a cool look at the Diamonds data set that 
made me forget that it's one of the oldest data sets in the, our ecosystem. So it's a really attractive, dark theme, great colors, great ty typography with a font. It's really stunning. And again, if someone was new to R and you show them this, they would think, oh, come on. Why are you showing me that? You must have fed that through Illustrator or something. Nope, not at all. This is all straight for R code. That's the kind of stuff I'd like to see. So, Mike, what did you like to see from uh, Michael's explorations here? Yeah, one of the great slash, you know, tricky things about plotting in R is that it's so customizable, right? We can do, like you said, we can do so much before needing uh, something like Illustrator. Right. Um, we, we can make really these beautiful graphics, but this can encompass a lot of code. I would say that that's the trade-off. Um, on some of these visualizations, you know, the amount of code that you need to really customize mm -hmm. it the, the way that you want to can be pretty lengthy, but I don't care. I am a huge sucker for beautiful data viz. Um, one thing that I saw really cool in, in Michael's post was seeing the subtitle of the chart defined as HTML code. Um, and then the way that it actually renders on the chart is is absolutely beautiful. I, I think it's it's you know you got multiple colors going in that subtitle. You got some some bold fonts, um, all, all sorts of crazy stuff. You got three lines going in the subtitle. Very very cool. Uh, I didn't again also didn't notice that this was the the diamonds data set just because of how beautiful the, the visual is. Um, I think we've successfully as an R community nuked the iris data set from all of our blogs uh, a lot of penguins still and a lot of <laughs> and uh you know the, the diamonds is still hanging That's around right. but i think we'll let it slide in this particular case here i can't re-emphasize enough um and i'm sure michael would agree with me the importance and power of leveraging the theme argument in ggplot2 and all of the different options that come with that to fully customize your visual some things that, that Michael did in his custom theme uh, include bolded the variable names in the chart. And then one thing that was really cool is he removed the redundant facet labels across all of the facets. So the, the X and Y axis labels are actually only in the bottom leftmost facet um, because they're at this, all of the other facets are at the exact same scale. So it's kind of redundant um, to continue to have those labels on every single one of these facets. And I think we got what, three, six, eight by five. So 40, 40 different plots um, all faceted in here. So it would be pretty convoluted if we did have uh, the X and Y axis scales taking up space on the page. So it's really, really nicely done visual by him. It's my first time as well being exposed to that GGH4X package. Um, it looks like there's some beautiful things that we can do there. If you go to the, the GitHub page that they have, uh, you, you have the ability to create a chart that has multiple color gradient scales, uh, you know, fasted by groups, I assume, that you're able to set on the chart across different palettes. You can have sort of three different palettes going for your color gradient um, scales in your legend all in the same chart. Really, really incredible stuff that, this package can apparently do without the need of something like, you know, patchwork or having to stitch multiple visuals together. Um, so really nice to see some of these new packages that I wasn't aware of and maybe others 
won't be aware of uh, as well. So definitely a blog post for you if you're a data viz nerd like me. Yeah, I was again the the, the choices he made and and how how it looks, but again the theme argument is giving you a way no matter if you're trying to get you know a, a very you know attractive looking visualization for sharing on your favorite social media platform or if it's in your an organization and you have to adhere to certain branding principles you get the best of both worlds there you can make it as contemporary as you want it to have but if you've been given a strict set of requirements from a branding office or whatnot you can have that have that cake and eat it too here with ggplot2 i can speak to that part from experience where i was tasked with creating a shiny app that produced ggplots that's nothing new right but i was given an 80 some page branding document where i had to adhere to all these yeah i yeah you heard me right luckily only about 10 of those pages are relevant to me thank goodness but <laughs> But I was like, okay, wait, they want this font. They want this set of color for this treatment group. They have this set. So that was an interesting learning journey. But the nice thing is, is that I took Michael's approach here, just had a function to produce my theme, threw all that stuff in, all that font stuff, all the color customizations. And then my app was was wickety split, easily able to create those plots. So it is the flexibility does have sometimes a trade-off with the code complexity, but I think the more you practice it, the more you'll be able to start kind of finding this middle ground between making every single element custom versus just customizing the bits you need. And then just in a specific project, maybe you extend it a little further, but then you still get that, that nice kind of like canvas and foundation that I let off with so that you don't have to do the same customizations over and over again it's all just built in in that in that one theme object so yeah lots of lots of interesting nuggets and those additional packages are definitely ones that i want to take a look at after after or at least for my next uh, ggplot2 visualization all right well we're gonna we're gonna switch Quite a bit of a radical shift to our third highlight here, where we're not so much thinking about what are you producing to the end customer, we're thinking about you as the author of your R programming scripts and making the most out of your environment for development. So every year, I always have one of those really geeky kind of development-minded resolutions that I fully admit here on a nationally broadcast podcast that I am not very good at actually sticking with. I want to use my mouse less when writing code. There, I said it. There are many- I thought we were international. International, yes. Oh gosh, we can't shortchange ourselves. You're right, internationally. That makes this even more uh, daunting that I'm saying this. But yes, they're- Highly, highly syndicated. I don't really know what that word means, but- We'll go with it. We'll go with it. <laughs> There And speaking of international, there are many talented de developers from local and from other parts of the world that I admire in both the data science and the general open source communities who do absolutely amazing things with just using their keyboard. The good news is modern IDEs or integrated development environments often come with built-in keyboard shortcuts to enhance your productivity. 
And our, the RStudio ID is certainly no exception to this. So in the latest blog post on the DataChimp site, Matt Dupree, who I believe is the founder of DataChimp, illustrates the simple ways that you can zoom in to the various panes inside your RStudio IDE editor, which is a great feature for many situations. This may not sound like much, but in many situations, this can be a really great way for you to minimize, say, distractions by looking at all of, like your environment, your files, and then your source code all at once. Or maybe you're doing a live demonstration, or I dare say even a workshop, where having, having the ability to quickly zoom into your code itself and then maybe zoom back out and zoom to, say, the viewer pane if you're showing a Shiny app, to quickly toggle between those. That can, that can save you a lot of you know, effort and time in these situations. And then Matt concludes the post of a view um, operating system specific shortcuts that help you emulate kind of like what we call a tiling structure to your overall display. So you might put a window on the left or in the top or upper corner or whatnot. Now, these shortcuts that he talks about at the end are admittedly very Windows and Mac OS X specific. And first, I don't even use, regularly use a Windows machine anymore. And my usage of a Mac OS X environment is simply just to display web pages in a terminal. But I will plug, since I am a Linux geek at heart, um, one of my new favorite Linux distributions that I'm actually using to record this very podcast called Pop OS, which in their recent versions comes with their own take on a tiling window manager so that right out of the box, you can get some nice keyboard shortcuts to quickly move that web browser window to the left and then make sure your other windows are not overlapping it when they launch. You can save layouts, you can do all this um, customization. Again, these little tricks can really save you a lot of time as you, the developer, so you can concentrate your efforts on what you're really supposed to be doing, making that next great R package or next great Shiny app or getting that awesome uh, data analysis out the door. So yeah, little things add up and the zoom viewing is just one of the many aspects that our studio has for keyboard shortcuts. It doesn't even mention the idea of the command palette, another really handy tool that's been introduced recently that's changed my life. Again, a great way to get away from that uh, convenient and yet a little nagging mouse here and again. So Mike, what are your favorite shortcuts, my friend? You know, Eric, sometimes I feel like I don't even know you because I didn't know that there was a command palette in the RStudio IDE. And you haven't told me this information. <laughs> Not saying it was your responsibility or anything like that to keep me posted, but Control-Shift-P? Uh, are you kidding me? This is like VS Code within RStudio. How is this the first time that I'm hearing about this? Thank goodness for our weekly. <laughs> got to put the sound effect in there again. I think we've had that one a few times. Um, but really unique blog post uh, that I, I certainly appreciate. I think I know most, I'd like to think I know most of the hotkeys when it comes to like formatting my R code, re-indenting, commenting, adding Roxygen header documentation. But I feel like I know very few hotkeys for manipulating the IDE itself um, besides like, control s to, to save the document that i'm working on 
Um, I find myself all the time expanding and resizing the IDE panes um, because, you know, maybe I'm coding and then I want to open the, the, have the viewer be a little bit bigger because I'm creating a visual. So I'm dragging that up and dragging it back down. And then I want to work in the console a little bit or the terminal. And I could legitimately save myself a ton of time by leveraging these hotkeys. And I'm not just saying that because I'm contractually obligated to promote this blog post. Uh, it's, it is excellent. Um, and especially useful, like you said, during presentations and demos that I'm giving, where maybe you don't necessarily have access to a mouse. Uh, if you're using your, your laptop, you have to use your, your mouse pad, your touchpad, which obviously isn't as, as nice um, as using an actual mouse where those, these hotkeys could really come in handy. One thing I was thinking that this got me thinking about is we should get a Twitter thread going to see where everyone puts each pane in their RStudio IDE. Do you have your console on the left or on the right? Uh, are you a dark theme or a light theme? We should all just throw our RStudio IDE uh, screenshots out there and have a big old Twitter thread about who's right and who's wrong so we can get off the language wars and get on the RStudio IDE pain wars. <laughs> As if we needed more diversions, right? Uh, <laughs> I do remember many years ago. Wow, I can't believe I'm saying many years ago. I can't remember if it was me or someone else that authored a post on the RStudio community portal about what your favorite pain layout was. Now, that was, again, that was at least four or five years ago. I bet a lot of that's changed since the response is there. So I'm all for crowdsourcing the heck out of that feedback. That would be awesome. Yeah, I think I saw a blog. I think I saw some sort of a Twitter thread last week that was someone just not even having a healthy debate on, hey, you know, base R versus tidyverse. They were like, base R is better than tidyverse. So I could, should, we should author a blog post that says, this is the way that your R Studio IDE should be set up. Just real, real opinionated, get people all hot and bothered. Controversy creates publicity, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> a famous person I follow says controversy creates cash, but unfortunately we won't get paid for doing stuff like that. So we'll, we'll take the publicity instead. <laughs> I'm just teasing. But, but speaking of awesome things for the public, well, of course our weekly itself is public. That's why you're listening to this. It's all open source. It's all freely available to read. And there's always much more than the three highlights we mentioned here. Um, one little nugget that caught my eye and yes, it is related to some of the major announcements that were um, that were brought up at the recent RStudio Conf a couple of weeks ago, in particular the name change. But I was really intrigued by Ben Smith's uh, blog post, which took a data-driven and modeling approach to analyzing community reaction to the name change with a full-fledged Bayesian analysis using R and Stan. Are you kidding me? <laughs> But no, it's that is awesome. That is legit, my friend. And I work with a lot of Bayesian experts, so they'll get a real kick out of this. Now, of course, as a statistician, I got to say caveats abound with the sample size and the like. But come on, this is a cool analysis that, frankly, can also serve as a very practical answer to why the Bayesian approach to modeling is a really neat option in these situations. So yeah, have fun, have fun digesting that. Um, apparently the, the, the reaction is still kind of mixed, but again, data-driven approach to those insights. I can't, I can't turn that down ever. Yeah. I found a shiny app, you know, me of course. sucker for a good shiny app designed and built by Jan Moffitt. 
um, called Stats Bomb, a win probability match evaluator that is this absolutely incredible, interactive, um, shiny app that allows you to visualize win probabilities during the course of a game uh, during the UEFA Euro 2020 competition, which is a soccer competition uh, in, in Europe. And it's, it's an incredible shiny app. Uh, the visual, the use of all the different visuals and charts and tables that Jan employs here is really, really cool. If you're a sports fanatic like me and like Jan is, I think you'll really, really enjoy this one. I always love seeing two of my favorite things, shiny and sports merged together. And that's a great use case for for showing how powerful those assessments can be in real time with things that many people can relate to. So perhaps even our curator uh, threw that in there for obvious reasons. He's also a big uh, football fan to the rest of the world. I will call it football. That's, I've, been, I've been schooled well, my friend. <laughs> we appreciate you, us in the football community. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yep. So what else do we appreciate? all of you for listening and also we always appreciate your help for our weekly if you see a great resource online that you'd like to see included in our next issue that's simply going to ourweekly.org you'll see a link to our github repo and the current draft right at the top of the page so you can quickly send a handy dandy little pull request with your item and one of our curators will be glad to get that into the issue and Backend revisions are still in progress to make uh, submitting new websites that regularly post our content a lot easier for you to find and, and send to us. So stay tuned for all that. But some good progress is going to be made on that front. And also, thanks to all of you listening, our international audience. We never want to shortchange that. You've all been very valuable to us. And hopefully you keep listening for our next episodes. And so, Mike, uh, maybe they won't find a lot of controversial tweets from you, but where can they find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. Awesome. I, I tend to have some hot takes now and again, but they're all in good fun. I am at the RCast, so definitely have a follow there if you want to see my takes on things. In fact, I had a funny little reply to um, Albert Rapp, friend of the podcast, his uh, shiny adventures. Um, just trying to nudge him a little bit that he needs to think of his future self a little bit. You'll you'll see why if you go to this Twitter thread. Um, but he's doing great work. So also, he, was, he didn't tell me to say this, but I want to plug Albert's newsletter. It's a great little, you know, once a week, uh, nice find in my inbox to give me some pleasant reading to start my week. And that's what we're all about here at Our Weekly, some pleasant reading to Love up your R knowledge. So check out Albert's uh, thread for all that too. Well, we're going to close up shop here in episode 89. Thank you all so much for listening. And we will see you for our next episode of our weekly highlights next week. <laughs>